We are now live on Facebook. Hello, friends. Welcome to today's episode of the Voices for Change show, hosted by filmmaker and women's activist on a mission to end domestic violence, Miss Tracy Schott, producer and director of the award-winning documentary, Finding Jen's Voice. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. Thrilled to be here to introduce you to today's guest, Janine Najai. David, I hope I said that right, Janine. <laughs> she is the deputy director. <laughs> she is the deputy director of the Global Lab for Research in Action at UCLA's Luskin School of Public Affairs. So today, Janine and Tracy will teach us about the Global Lab, what it is, what it does, and how everyone can be part of the change to end domestic partner violence around the world. So take it away, Tracy. Thanks, Hope, and thanks, Janine, for joining us. Um, as Hope mentioned, I met Janine um, through the Global Lab. Um, I had seen an article by um, her, par her partner in the Global Lab, uh, Dr. Manisha Shaw, that Dr. Manisha Shaw had written about her research on the shadow pandemic. Well, I reached out to her, I connected with Janine, and uh, Dr. Shaw ended up participating in a um, webinar that we did a few weeks ago on the global pan, the shadow pandemic from a global perspective. Um, and so that was um, fascinating and, and informative and um, Dr. Shaw's research has been amazing. But you know, it's this, this idea of taking that research and those numbers and that, that information that lives in the ivory towers um, and it's been one of my kind of hangups since doing Finding Jen's Voice that there's so much great information locked in the ivory towers that is not um, accessible, um, easily accessible to the public, easily understandable by the public, and is not really in uh, being put into action. And so you guys are taking on that um, issue head on. So t tell us about um, your work, Janine. Thank you. Well, thank you, Hope, and thank you, Tracy, for having me on today. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about our work, and it's nice to sort of come on the heels from Dr. Manisha Shah, my partner at the Global Lab, um, who really sort of leads all the, the research. She's our, our lead researcher, and my role is really sort of everything else. So, um, you know, I think you, you said it perfectly when you talked about how do we get research out of the ivory tower? How do we break down academic boundaries? Because I think something that the last year has probably shown us and maybe a way that we all didn't realize before is how valuable data and research is. Um, not just for sort of academics and policymakers, but for us as individuals to make decisions in our day-to-day -day lives. And I think that we've all been sort of keeping an eye on numbers and trends in a way that we hadn't perhaps uh, previously. And so, um, you know, we, we actually as an organization are a very new research institute. So we've been incubating for a year or so. Then, you know, like many others were impacted by the uh, pandemic just literally a few weeks before we were due to launch. Um, we had a lot of ambitious plans um, to really transform our research into action. 
Um, and we, you know, we're really considering, do we take, do we take a pause um, as everybody is really focused on understandably what's going on in the world? And um, yeah, we had lots of events. We were canceled and postponed like many others. We were, we had a launch event. Uh, we were due to speak at the World Bank and our research in Tanzania, which I know that we may speak about um, a little later. We had been invited by the First Lady of Los Angeles to, to talk about our work and everything went away overnight. And we had to make that decision. Do we, do we pause and see what, what happens? And we actually then, the decision was taken away from us. Uh, because we had approaches from talented students wanting to intern with us, we had approaches from, you know, policy makers and um, other academic institutes that wanted us to present our research. Um, we had approaches from partners wanting to do, you know, new uh, studies together. And so we just realized, you know, Manisha and I, this is exactly not the right time to pause. This is exactly the time we need to 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 launch albeit uh, differently than how we may have imagined so like a lot of you know like everyone we just rolled up our sleeves adapted our ways of working and you know hired an incredible team of student interns as like a very young new research institute and we really just got to work that's awesome I, you know, I, we were chatting before we started that uh, Voices for Change was set to launch uh, March 1st of 2020. And the same kind of thing, it was like, well, who's going to pay attention to us? Who wants to talk about domestic violence when, when, you know, people are dying from this pandemic? Um, although at the same time, we also realized that there were still more people dying from domestic violence than the pandemic. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and, and so uh, how do you, but how do you how do you break through the noise and how do you get people's attention when they're in a panic and it was it was very challenging um but um the other thing that the pandemic has done is created these new kind of normal you know the new normal of us doing what we're doing today you know for our viewers yeah. um hope is uh broadcasting from new mexico i'm broadcasting this week from New Jersey. And um, Janine is in Oxford, England. Um, not something we would have norm normally thought about doing a year and a half ago. Um, wow. So it's yeah, finally back here visiting family after nearly two years apart. So delighted, you know, normally I'm obviously based in California, you know, out of UCLA and, and finally managed <laughs> to get back here um, to be reunited with family, which is, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I felt exactly the same, you know, to your point around, um, you know, the shadow pandemic, which is, you know, we'd had research coming out around intimate partner violence from a study that we'd done in Tanzania. And so, you know, we were really focusing on, okay, how do we um, translate this research and how do we amplify it? Uh, to various different audiences so that the, they can, you know, use it to, whether it's um, informed policy, whether it is, you know, a practitioner on the ground who's thinking, okay, how do I improve my program? Where are there sort of, you know, opportunities to replicate this? Um, but also, honestly, and particularly about this study, which is how do we inform people? 
the general population around these findings, because I feel that a lot of research institutes, you know, there's a lot of sort of research to sort of inform policy. And that is absolutely critical, it's crucial. And then as we were sort of thinking about the, you know, the way that the global lab really, I suppose, even adapted, because like I said, we were in a, you know, a, a startup mode, we realized that, you know, the importance of having these sort of three pronged approach, which is, we need to absolutely inform policymakers. How do we do that? We need to work with practitioners, whether it's through, um, you know, working with them to evaluate their programs, to try and find tried and tested and successful interventions, mm-hmm. but also people, people have power, whether that's as citizens and voters and activists, community organizers, they can put pressure on the solution pipeline. And what we were really excited to explore was to dive in to see what happens when you take that piece of research and you start adapting it in ways that are accessible for different audiences in different ways. And how can we contribute through all of these realms by getting the research out into the world? I thought it was a really innovative approach. The The information on the research that uh, you did with uh, on the shadow pandemic, I found in several different locations and it, written for different audiences, same, the same basic information, but you know, there was a very academic um, research article that, that I found. And then I found an op-ed, you know, kind of written in a more general term and, um, and then saw interviews with Dr. Shaw from other, um, you know, other journalists. And it, so I really appreciate how you took that information and you got it out. You really got it out. And so few researchers actually do that. Um, I'm glad you said that because we actually find that we get a lot of interest in our work from people finding the research in various places which is excellent because it shows that it's it's working and so I think I mentioned to you the other day we had you know an individual who approached us you know we didn't know who they were but they had obviously read either you know our research and op-ed or you know um, a policy brief about you know our, our research around intimate partner violence and they were a survivor themselves and they actually approached us to say i want to contribute i want to help like how do we change you know the conversation um because it is as well about shifting societal norms and that takes a really long time and it takes a lot of coordinated effort and i think that that's you know really sort of the global lab wouldn't you wouldn't exist without our partnerships. So everything we do in whatever area it is, whether it's the research, you know, working with organizations to evaluate their work or, um, you know, to advise on programs from, you know, other research that we have published or whether it's sort of partners in the realm of amplification because, you know, we want journalists to talk about our work. We want to, you know, obviously create our own policy briefs and research briefs, because let's be honest, you know, a policymaker may not have the time to read a 45 page paper, but does have the time for a three page policy brief. And then similarly, you know, a practitioner on the ground wants to know, okay, that's great, but how do I now adapt and replicate that? 
um, you know, on the ground. And then the general public, they don't want to know about standard deviations. They want to know how does this impact my life and how does this, um, how can I make choices um, based on this research? And that's why I think it's really interesting this past year, because I think we've all been speaking, you know, not just sort of, you know, professional realm, but in our personal lives about uh, what are you reading and what have you heard and what should we be doing now? And we were having to adapt, you know, and uh, ourselves and our lives and our lifestyles um, in ways that we'd never done before. And that actually brings me hope when it comes to sort of other areas of work, like, you know, when we're talking about intimate partner violence, domestic violence, because I think it is around this sort of cultural shift and change. And I think that, you know, the research that we have done has found that, you know, really engaging boys and young men is absolutely vital. And then that is something that you're sort of obviously, you know, approaching this not from sort of tackling um, you know, the, the challenges, it's actually thinking about how do we look for solutions, you know, and change this before it's even happened. Well, tell us more about the Tanzania um, research, because I think it's really fascinating. And, you know, the work that you did with boys is so, so simple, but so powerful. It has lots exactly. of ramifications. Exactly. And, and it's interesting because people hear, you know, Tanzania and they think, okay, well, how is that, you know, how is that going to be relevant? And that's, you know, and I, I'd like to sort of start by saying the global lab is looking at, you know, our work in with a glo the global, you know, lens, which is how do we learn from each other? How can we, you know, how do we share successful practices? How do we adapt? How do we scale? And so, you know, when I think about our work in Tanzania, I think about the fact that we have been able to really sort of share the findings amongst various different audiences across the globe. And so, you know, we, we did a randomized controlled trial, which is, you know, the gold standard of research, which costs a lot and takes a lot of time. And really what we were looking at is sort of adolescent reproductive health. And we were looking at, um, you know, unintended teenage pregnancies, HIV, STIs, and intimate partner violence. And we were, you know, looking at interventions to see how can we, you know, improve on these. Um, and we partnered with, with BRAC Tanzania, which is one of the largest, um, you know, NGOs, global NGOs. And we had a couple of partners on the ground. And, um, and basically, we, we sort of, you know, there were three interventions. And one of those interventions was free contraception. Uh, another intervention was goal setting with girls around their, their health. And then the third one was actually engaging boys and young men through a soccer based health intervention. And so we were looking at the three different interventions and then those three different you know, outcomes and, and seeing how they you know, may, may change. And, and what we found is that both the goal setting with the girls and the soccer based program with the boys reduced intimate reports of intimate partner violence um, and you know what was fascinating as they sort of analyze and continue to analyze is that you know when they were looking at those two interventions one of them actually was more about quantity of partners and one was then actually there was um, more about you know girls selecting you know a better 
a better fit partner, you know, what we call higher quality, but maybe like someone of the same age group. And, and so we were looking at that. And what was just very, you know, interesting is that when you look at that, like you said, it seems so simple. And yet when you look at, you know, I'm here now in the the UK and, you know, and I, you know, know a lot about, you know, education system in the US, yet why aren't we, why aren't we teaching this type of programming to our our young boys? Because, you know, what we're seeing is that later on in life, you know, uh, this is having, you know, there, there are consequences. And I think that what people do not realize is that, you know, we're talking about Tanzania, but intimate partner violence, as we've talked about before, Tracy, is like, this is, this is not based on location or income or race or class. It impacts everyone. I think it's fascinating that um, we're learning lessons from a country like Tanzania, right? You know, we, you know, there's, there's a bit of arrogance, you know, among uh, the Western world countries that, you know, somehow we are, we're in the teacher mode, right? Um, but we really need to be in the student mode and in listening to um, some of this work that's happening um, in Africa. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. I'm so glad you said that. When I spent time, I was working with Plan International in Zambia. And um, it was actually I, I was in with a group of adolescents and their work. They were they were going through a program that was, essentially, you know, adolescent sexual reproductive health. And I was um, in, involved in sort of there's a lot of early marriage there and um, enforced marriage. And so we were, we were take challenging, um, taking on some of those topics. And honestly, their equivalent of sex ed is so advanced to what I received in school and what I know is, is being taught. And the way in which these young people spoke about their sexual health was so mature. And I was so impressed. And I was thinking exactly what you said, Tracy, which is, you know, there's this feeling that what, you know, the developed countries have to teach versus actually what have we got to learn? And I think that that's where the global lab really is key, which is we're thinking about the sharing of information, the sharing of this research and this evidence um, across the globe in various different ways. And that's, you know, not globally, not including the US, that's including the US. So some of our work that we're doing, we're translating it and actually, you know, actually trying to, um, you know, inform policymakers based on our work in Tanzania and, and now sort of, you know, other other countries. So I think you're, you're absolutely right when you say there's this, sometimes there's this um, arrogance around sort of what can we teach and actually what can we learn? Yeah. Yeah, and it's um, as as we've spoken about so many times on this program is that uh, you know combating intimate partner violence, it, it, it's it's such a global problem and it's uh, so insidious um, that you have to you have to look at every means possible and every target audience you can find um, to to make a dent. Um, and I love the idea of engaging young boys early on and young men early on in the problem and helping them to understand um, the importance of gender equality in their relationships. Um, And, you know, if they can accomplish that so successfully in Tanzania, um, what can we do here, you know? Exactly. and, and something else that the, the partner we work with on the ground in Tanzania, grassroots soccer, you know, they do phenomenal work. And, and even when I'm sort of reading about the way they engage young boys, like 
it's fun. It's it's a way, and the same with actually Brack with their girls' clubs. It's fun. So the girls turn up and they do, you know, they do the class. They want to be there. And then we've got to think about that as well from a young person's perspective. And, you know, and I'm always thinking about that sort of generational gap as well, which is, you know, teaching children this. And it's like, actually, we could share information in ways that are more digestible for young people. And that's something that I'm thinking about next with the Tanzania findings, which is, Great. We've got, you know, we've got the, the policy brief, you know, we've obviously in, you know, a lot of um, different media outlets, but actually, how do we reach parents and teachers and even adolescents themselves, because this is relevant for them and they, they can make informed choices. Um, you know, as a parent, you may decide, actually, this is something that I want to do with my children. Well, I'm anxious to see how how you translate that information and get it out to um, to parents and please share it with me and I'll share it with everybody because I I think that there are um, uh, people become intimidated um, and do such a poor job of talking about um, uh, you know gender bias, gender differences, intimate partner violence. These are things that people don't know how to talk about. And um, finding a way to talk to your children about it. If you can talk to your kids about it, then you can talk to each other about it. Absolutely. So I think it's a, it's a really great way of just a, a bubble. It will bubble into our culture. Um, you know, and of course, you know, um, you know, my goal is, you know, to make uh, intimate partner violence absolutely unacceptable um in my lifetime and i'm getting older so we need work hard <laughs> exactly exactly and i think that um, i'm glad you actually shared that about you know we don't talk about it you're right and the global lab you know we're pretty bold in our approach we in what we do but also what we study um, we like to study understudied topics and hard to reach populations for exactly that reason because actually we can make really big impact and contribution because people aren't talk about it, talking about it, they're not comfortable. Um, and whether that's sex ed, <laughs> reproductive health, or whether that's sex work. Yeah, um, and let's, that's know. a great segue into that, into that work that you've been doing on um, sex workers and decriminalizing sex work. Can you talk some yeah. more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm, it's been a really exciting sort of time at the Global Lab because actually when we, you know, first were, you know, forming, um, my partner, Manisha, she's, you know, she's one of the, the leading researchers on sex work in the world. Um, she literally wrote the handbook of the Oxford handbook of, of prostitution. So she's done so much research all around the world. And, and again, and I think that that's where it came to, which is like, okay, how do we get that out into, you know, the public sphere? Um, because it tended to sort of stay in these sort of um, realms of, you know, certain pockets of organizations and, and people working on it. But what people don't realize is this actually, you know, when you're talking about sex work, again, it impacts us all. Because I am always thinking about with our research, how do we answer the question, why should I care? And it's interesting because as I talk about, um, you know, our work around sex work, sometimes, you know, people feel uncomfortable. Sometimes people feel like it's a topic that perhaps shouldn't be spoken about. Or sometimes people think it's a topic that's just not relevant to them in their lives. And they, you know, and I think that this is when research and storytelling can be really sort of, you know, powerful together because people forget about, you know, that sex workers 
can be um, parents um, and that sex workers could be your neighbor and that sex workers are, you know, could be a student um, actually, you know, paying for tuition. Um, and so I think that the sort of humanizing powered with the evidence is really powerful. And so what's been exciting over the sort of the, the past year plus is that, you know, through the research that, that Manisha and, you know, other researchers have done, you know, really what we were looking at was the impact on health. So the health implications. And, you know, there's various different sort of policy interventions when it comes to sex work. Um, and, you know, it's criminalized in most places in the world. Um, there's another model called the N-Demand or Nordic model, which um, does lack evidence, but seems to be the less um, perhaps controversial approach to take. And then there's decriminalization. And we are in a really exciting period, an important period where there are lots of policymakers making decisions right now about what they're going to do about sex work. And a lot, like I say, are going for the sort of end demand Nordic model, which really looks at we won't arrest sex workers, but we'll arrest their clients, which of course then means that essentially they don't have access to as many clients. And actually what happens is the um, more risk averse clients move out of the market. And what really sex workers then have to do is work with clients who perhaps take take more risk, which is not good for outcomes um, for women um, and can, you know, have implications to um, STIs, um, to HIV, violence. And the big sort of piece that we've been really looking at, which is to answer the question of why should I care, is that when we look at decriminalization of sex work, it actually improves health outcomes not just for the sex worker, but actually the wider community. So some of, you know, Manisha and, and co-authors have found that actually violence in the community actually reduces. So rape, sexual assault actually decreases in the community when you decriminalize sex work. So when you're thinking about this from maybe, you know, a perspective of the general population, I think there's different ways you can think about it. And actually, isn't that a positive outcome for everyone, whether you think that this is some, a topic that you should care about or not. And I think that because policymakers are perhaps focusing on what's the policy that we, what's the, you know, the model that I can sort of, you know, implement that is going to be the least controversial. But actually, this is where we all play our part, which is, you know, as individuals who have that power, we can raise our voices as, as voters, as community organizers, and as activists and say, well, actually, this is the approach I would want in my community, in, in, in my city, in my state. Tell, tell us a little bit more about the research. Um, you know, when I think about uh, sex workers, I immediately start thinking about uh, sex trafficking. I think yeah. about young girls, um, you know, doing sex work against their will and, um, you know, drugs and abuse and just all of the, the nightmare that goes along with um, human trafficking around sex work. So that's, that's where my head goes. But your research is saying something else. Absolutely. And so the first thing we, you know, we just released uh, just a month ago, um, both a an op-ed and a policy brief really to, you know, 
to talk about why we should be supporting decriminalization, but also to address this, which is it's often conflated. Sex work is often conflated with sex trafficking. And so sometimes you say, oh, you know, a lot of our research on sex work and everyone's like, I know sex trafficking. And so we always like to state, you know, sex work is between two consulting, consenting adults. And so absolutely there is, you know, sex trafficking and, and, and all the things that you mention. But when we're talking about sex work, we're talking about the, the, those individuals who choose, who are, who are consenting um, in that exchange. And so, you know, I think that sometimes what happens is when people hear that, that's where some of that sort of stigma arises because people are thinking around sex trafficking. And we actually, um, Manisha participated recently in a really interesting conversation. Um, and it actually featured a, um, a woman who was a sex worker and also was led into sex work through trafficking. And so you've got a really inter interesting conversation because you, you know, you're hearing from an individual who is saying, you know, yes, you're right, sex trafficking, you know, as somebody who, you know, was sex trafficked, that is, you know, that is a different topic. But she said what she found is that was used as fear, a fear base, so that she would not access help and support because essentially okay, because sex work is illegal and you've been sex trafficked and you're doing this work, you can't turn to go and get help and to, to essentially go, go to, you know, um, to police and go and uh, sort of make yourself known. And so she said, had that not been criminalized, if it had been decriminalized, I wouldn't have been in fear in that way. So she said the, the very, you know, the very policies that are in place to meant to protect um, sex workers protect like the end, end demand of the Nordic, Nordic model, they're not actually protecting them in that way. So by decriminalizing sex work, you give um, victims of sex trafficking more access to help because yeah, they're, not, they're not bound um, by fear of the laws. Exactly, exactly. And then, and I think that, you know, we had a conversation around you know, SESTA Foster, which was passed, which means that it's very difficult to advertise and to screen clients online now. So that actually, that passed. And then what we found was that actually now we're forcing sex workers to take greater risks. They cannot um, go online and screen clients. They cannot maybe engage in some of the virtual sex work um, and, and, and then, you know, choosing to, to do in-person sex work. So, you know, again, when we think about when policies that are designed to essentially protect individuals actually doing them more harm than good, then something is wrong. Um, and so these sort of things get passed. And so, and then it's very hard once things, once policies are passed to roll back. And that's why I say that right now we're in this sort of, you know, window of opportunity whether, you know, we get a lot of approaches from DAs and policymakers asking, you know, what will happen if we decriminalize? Because you've done a lot of research on this, what will happen? And so we've got this opportunity now to really amplify um, all the, the benefits of decriminalization so that then we are actually passing policy, policies that are, are doing good, not harm. 
It's it's a really interesting subject, and you know, so so much of your work is really um, wrapped up in um, issues that culturally, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of judgment, there's a lot of blaming, victim blaming that we see like in intimate partner violence. We also see that among sex workers and sex traffickers, tra sex, sex traffic victims. Um, it, you know, it's, it's um, it, and it's that kind of judgment, kind of moralistic judgment that really gets in the way of helping people. Exactly. And I think that's where the piece of the research alongside storytelling and really humanizing, because all the work that we all do it's, you know, each, each sort of data point, that's an individual, that's a human being, you know, when we're, when we're working with, you know, uh, you know, with populations, we've got to think, you know, the human element, the human story, and I think that those combined are really powerful, and I think that that's where the global lab plays a role, which is how do we, you know, how do we talk about these, these topics in ways that actually start making them more, you know, easier to access, um, less un uncomfortable for people. And, you know, again, it's about shifting societal norms. Yeah, it's awesome. I, I'm really appreciative of the work that you're doing. It doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of people out there, other researchers out there who are working in, in this way. Are, are, are you kind of unique and the first out there? Well, I think, you know, there are, there are some, you know, out there. I feel that you know, when we, you know, were really sort of iterating how we worked, I was really thinking about, okay, how do we, how do we use new and innovative ways? And, you know, that means for us, documentaries, documentary films, how do we get our research? So we've been researched recent, um, interviewed research, <laughs> excuse me, interviewed recently, um, you know, around our research for, by a, a documentary filmmaker, um, who's going to release a documentary about sex work. And so how do we get that re research into documentaries? I'm thinking about that even in sort of storytelling. So the things that the media we consume, my husband's area of work, and I'm always thinking, finding it fascinating how we learn so much through what we consume and how do we make sure that accurate portrayals of individuals um, and the research and the evidence are really sort of integrated into that storytelling. And then I'm thinking about the sort of, not just the sort of virtual academic um, spaces, but also the, you know, the platforms that reach a large number of individuals. Right. Um, so I think that there's lots of different ways to approach it. And, um, and I'm excited to, to, to keep on thinking of, of how we really amplify and translate it in ways that are helpful for yeah. people. I find that, you know, we're in this sort of age of, you know, social media where everything's sort of bite-sized and, and how do we get these messages across? And it's like some of the research is so dense, but we need to find ways to um, translate it that are digestible, that are easy for people to understand and also easy for them to then make an informed decision themselves about their lives or about how they may, um, you know, how, how they may sort of take that research forward. 
Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I, before, before I started doing documentary film or even alongside of that, I've, I've also, you know, the bread and butter in my world has been making television commercials, right? And you learn in a television commercial how to say a whole lot in a very short amount of time, 30 seconds, actually 25 with the end tag, right? So you really learn how to boil it down. And I know that some of the people on your, the students on your team have marketing backgrounds. And I think that that's really important. I think it's genius really to use that kind of marketing background to boil down, you know, boil it down into the key message that's going to get people's attention and make them click. You know, really what you're looking for is what you just said was interesting enough and compelling enough for them to just click and then go to learn more. Right. And then you've got to, each click has got to give you something else that makes you want to keep clicking. And, and, um, you know, that's something that I'm constantly learning. Um, my, the team that I work with out of India, one gen is constantly teaching me that. <laughs> and, um, it's, it's, and, and hope, um, who's great <laughs> going, Oh no, we're not clicking it just right there. It's going here, 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 and here. And, I know. You're making me miss all my graduating students because (laughs) when they realized that I was trying to use the Twitter and the Facebook pages without them and figure out, it took me far too long to figure out how how to do it. I I miss them terribly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is, it is, um, it's, it is a brave new world and there are so many different platforms um, that you that if you really want to make a change in the world, you have to be familiar with all of the platforms. You have to be, you know, right now I'm, uh, you know, I'm creative director of our local film festival in Reading, Pennsylvania. And, um, you know, we're talking marketing. And when you're talking marketing, you're talking social media, you're, you know, and all of those platforms. And then you're talking the traditional platforms. And it's like, does anybody still know how to write a press release? You know? And does anybody still so, read a press release? <laughs> I mean, no, it's, you know, we've got the, you know, I think there's a lot more people listening to Audible, you know, the audio, whether it's a play, whether it's a book, you know, book, and I still call them book on tape. <laughs> I know, a book on tape. Um, I say to my daughter, should I put a book on tape for you? Um, but yes, and then um, what's the new one that just came out? And I was like, what is this? And why don't I know about it? The... I've, I've forgotten the, the the platform now, and I, I downloaded it. Um, Clubhouse. Everyone's talking about Clubhouse now, and I'm I'm okay. Maybe we need you know great opportunity for people to sort of, and it's just a listening, um, you know, groups of people listening. So I'm like, okay, there's there's lots of opportunity out there, and that's when I think about translation and amplification. I'm always thinking about how do we do this in a way to reach people, and you have to reach them. You know, it's not just the translation, but it's where they're consuming exactly um, yeah 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 it's it's interesting and 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 for me it always I always come back to I started this to amplify the voices of survivors of intimate yeah. partner violence that's my niche that's where and I and I truly believe that it's it's um, impactful and it can really make a difference um, one of the things that I'm working with my team now um, we're, we're creating an interactive platform on Voices for Change where survivors will be able to interact with each other and and instead of just like writing, because not everybody likes to write, 
they can post an Instagram video or, um, you know, repost a blog or, you know, that just kind of make it really easy for people to find and share information. Um, And, you know, that that is that's the goal of Voices for Change. It's also the goal of the Global uh, Research Lab. So I'm really thrilled about the work that you're doing. And, and, and we are about your, you know, your work too, because I, like I said, we don't exist. We're in a vacuum without partners to be able to, to do this work. And, um, you know, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right where you, you know, you're talking about how do we amplify voices so that they ha- can, can say in their words and it's not being sort of just written about or, you know, yeah. So I think that that's a really powerful platform to have. It is. It's exciting. And, um, you know, again, I think we've uh, both of our organizations spent the last year, um, all three of our organizations, certainly uh, Incandescent Women did the same thing is we all just kind of took this lockdown and um, and broke out of it, you know, virtually. And so it's it's been kind of exciting to watch it grow and and excited to see where it goes and we'll continue this partnership and we'll hear back from you in the future as you get new stuff going on so absolutely well thank you so much for giving us the opportunity Tracy and and hope and we'll certainly be back with with more of our research and uh we'd love to to love to share it with you that's great and what I'm going to do is we are going to um post this uh, video on our YouTube link, but also uh, there'll be a link to it from our website, voicesforchange.net, so that you you can access the information at the uh, Global Lab. And uh, for all you research nerds out there, you'll, you'll be really excited to see what's going on. Yeah, the research is fascinating. It's an important component. I studied positive psychology at Claremont Graduate University and didn't realize what I was learning in that one semester that I lasted <laughs> because it's so incredible how research works and how research researchers think. In fact, you both inspired me today. I think we'll make this a cover story for an upcoming issue of the magazine. I just think it's so important that women you know, sex workers, women who are struggling with domestic abuse need a platform, a voice to know that they're not alone. Right. And you two magical women are helping and bringing it all together. So I thank you both for being on today's episode of Voices for Change on Incandescent Radio, Incandescent TV, and of course, voicesforchange.net. So we will talk to you all soon. Thank you all for listening and playing with us today. We will be back in two weeks for the next episode of Voices for Change. We're still trying to figure out the perfect next guest, and we'll promote that on social media. So Janine, Tracy, thank you. And thank you to everyone who's watching. We'll see you soon.